So you're, uh, that you're not caught by surprise, we're going to try to work through some uh, newer songs this year. Uh, new to us, not necessarily uh, new to the church at large, but um, uh, something that I hope to be able to do more last year and just uh, due to time constraints we weren't able. So we're not going to this year make up for the ones we didn't do last year and cram them all in. We'll go at a reasonable pace, but I figure this was a an easy one to start with, with a tune that we're familiar, and so um, we'll, we'll work on learning maybe a few every month and, and kind of expand. Um, not because the ones that we have in the hymnal are bad, but because it's also good. <coughs> every hymnal has, has things that are lacking in a, in a broad portrayal of truth from the Bible and truth about God, and so we want to both try to fill in some of those gaps and be continue uh, continue to be encouraged to think about what we're singing. And one of the ways that that can happen is if we are singing new words, we have to stop and think about them a little bit more than words that we always sing. And so, uh, a variety of reasons for us to learn new new hymns and, and songs that praise God. So, I just wanted to mention that briefly in light of what we just sang together. We look at this passage, and uh, to set it in its proper context, we need to recognize that this is kind of Maybe the midpoint of Joseph's story. He has the, the part where he was sold by his brothers into slavery and sent down to Egypt. And then some things happened to him in Egypt. A rise to power in Potiphar's household. A casting down when Potiphar's wife lied about him after she tried to get him to commit adultery with her. And he refused. He's in prison. A rise to power in prison. And then seemingly being forgotten by those whose dreams he interpreted. Uh, specifically the cupbearer who survives Pharaoh's wrath and is restored to his position in Pharaoh's household, but forgets Joseph for several years. And then another rise to power, as by God's help he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and is placed into, into a position just under Pharaoh, supervising the gathering of grain in light of the famine that is to come, and uh, has children, and seemingly God's hand of blessing is upon him. But even though the, all those things had taken place, Joseph's dreams that he had back in chapter 37 had not yet been fulfilled, even though those of the cupbearer, the baker, and Pharaoh were coming to pass. And we see in this chapter, Genesis 42, the fulfillment of Joseph's first dream, this idea that his brothers would come and bow down before him. And so uh, we take this, even though it is connected with chapters 43 through the end of the book, but we're going to look just at this one, because I think in this passage, we have a coming together of the contrast between famine or death and life, and we have a contrast between the fear that Jacob expresses at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, the fear that Joseph's brothers, Leah's sons, express in the middle of the chapter, and the love that God is testing and proving and producing in them that has not yet reached its its end uh, continues throughout the rest of the book, but we see the starting point of that, I think, in this chapter. This sort of this question, this testing of whether Joseph's brothers are exactly as they were when they hated him and sold him into slavery, or whether God has begun to do a work in their hearts and lives. And so let's walk through the passage as we look at, at some of those ideas together. And so we come here to chapter 42. The famine has begun. The famine is not localized only to Egypt. It's throughout, as best we can tell, the known world, at least throughout the Middle East, because it's affecting both Egypt 
and the land of Canaan. Jacob's family is out of food, and Jacob says, Why are you standing around? Go get food in Egypt. That's where food is. And so he sends them down there. But we do see a hint of his former favoritism, and we do see a hint of his fear. Ten brothers go down. He doesn't send Benjamin because he is worried something will happen to him. Why is he worried something will happen to Benjamin? Because Benjamin is the only son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, that is yet alive. Joseph's the ruler over all the land, and he sees his brothers. They come down and bow before him. Now in verse 6, Joseph recognizes them in verse 7, but disguises himself and speaks harshly. Where have you come from? From the land of Canaan to buy food. The text stresses again. He recognizes them, but they did not recognize him in verse 8. Why didn't they recognize him? For one, more than 13 years have passed. 13, 14, 15 years have passed. Uh, so he looks a lot different now than he would have looked then. And they weren't expecting him to be there. They had given him up for dead long before. Didn't think there was any possibility that he could be alive. And certainly not the highest in the, in the land under Pharaoh. Because last they saw him, he was being sold into slavery. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. In his mind, he sees the, in this circumstance the fulfillment of what God had told him, even as a teenager. But he accuses them. You are spies. And some people looked at this and they said, why is Joseph so mean to his brothers? This is his chance to get back to, at them for what they did to him. That's, what, that's why he's so harsh to them in the way that he's speaking. But I think that Joseph is trying to accomplish something more. Not just get back at my brothers because of the wrong they did to me. Because if he did that, he would have been a lot harsher with them than he was. The things which he does provide an opportunity for them to be evaluated and tested in their character much as Joseph had been. Why do I say that? He makes a false accusation. Who made a false accusation against Joseph? Potiphar's wife. They have an opportunity to see if that accusation is true or false, or to show it to Joseph, to the others that are there. He's going to throw them into prison. Who was thrown into prison? Joseph was thrown into prison. Again, it's an opportunity for them to pause and think about their actions and to see if it stirs their consciences. He's going to hold one of their brothers in captivity for a minimum probably of six months, probably longer, and require them to bring their youngest brother back with them, which is going to test Jacob's trust of them, the safety of Benjamin, and their loyalty to their brother. Even though, as we'll see in a moment and be reminded of, the brother that is kept in captivity in Egypt is not necessarily deserving of their love because of his past actions. So let's see what Joseph does. We're not spies. We've come to buy food. We're sons of one man. We are honest men. That's an interesting thing for them to say in light of the fact that they lied to their father about what happened to their brother Joseph. I think that they realize after we go further in the chapter that there was perhaps a way in which that statement comes off a little bit hollow, a little bit empty. We are honest men. Yes, you're not spies, but I wouldn't go so far as to say you're honest men, right? 
He repeats his accusation. You've come to look at the undefended parts of the land. Now, on the one hand, Joseph's accusation seems a little bit uh, hard to believe, something like that. Because really, what could ten sons of a shepherd in Canaan do to the might of Egypt? But he's in the position of power. God is using him to evaluate their character, and this is the way in which he chooses to go about it. So they expand. We're twelve brothers in all, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father today. One is no longer alive. Except he's the one standing right in front of them, which they don't realize yet. Joseph repeats his accusation. You're spies, but by this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one, you may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Notice this idea of the life of Pharaoh. Joseph's using it as a kind of an oath or a statement of certainty. But that idea of life came up in verse 2, so that we may live and not die perhaps has a few echoes of what God said to Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, don't eat of the tree so that you don't die. Here it's the threat of death from starvation, not the threat of death from punishment. But now there's a threat of death from punishment. Joseph invokes the life of Pharaoh as an oath. We are honest men. Know your spies, but let's test your words to see if you are honest men. He puts them in prison for three days. Now we have the turning point of this particular section. He says to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. So first it was going to be, all of you are going to stay, one's going to go get Benjamin. Now it's, one of you is going to stay, and the rest of you, the other nine, are going to go get Benjamin. Joseph doesn't give his reasons for changing his mind. Perhaps he is uh, uh, illustrating to them mercy. I had the right to keep all of you, but I'm only going to keep one of you. Uh, We'll talk about in a moment why he picks the one that he picks. But why does he want them to bring Benjamin? Perhaps he's concerned for Benjamin's safety because he doesn't yet know has their character changed, so he wants to ensure Benjamin's safety. Uh, Perhaps God has revealed to him what he's later going to do, which is that he is an instrument of deliverance for his entire family, and the long-term plan is to bring the whole family to Egypt. Uh, The text has not yet explained all of this to us, or necessarily to Joseph, but he sends nine away, keeps one. How do his brothers interpret what is going on here? They said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Why are they thinking this? Joseph, the one that they wouldn't listen to, makes a repeated accusation. That's not true. Listen to us. Joseph's not listening to them in the same way that they didn't listen to Joseph. They're then in prison for three days thinking about what's just gone on. They know that at least one of them, perhaps most of them, are going to be remaining in prison, and one of them has to go and persuade their father to bring Benjamin, which they think is not going to happen. So there's the real possibility they're going to die of starvation. If Jacob doesn't change his mind, God is using all of these events to stir their consciences and say, what we did to Joseph was wrong. We should not have done that. He pled with us. We didn't listen. 
God has brought this upon us. It doesn't say God there, but we see it in verse 28. We'll get there in a moment. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. There's perhaps an element of I told you so, but there's also an element of Reuben just stating the truth. I tried to stop you and you wouldn't listen, and now the guilt, the consequences of our wrong action has come upon us. It seemed like they got away with it for a long time, right? If you did something and nothing bad happened for more than 10 years, perhaps almost 15 years, what would you think about the consequences of sin? Everybody else, but not me. And the reality is that even if no one in the world ever finds out our sin, God knows it. Which is not the primary point of this story, but it is something that we ought to consider. Um, And not for purposes of bathing in guilt indefinitely, but just the simple fact of not to take sin lightly, right? And to recognize that God can deal with it in ways that we can hardly anticipate in the way that through Joseph he deals with their sin against Joseph. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept, but when he turned to them and spoke to them again, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Why did Joseph pick Simeon? There's a couple of possibilities. One is, he was aware of the fact that Reuben had tried to show compassion to him and that Judah had turned the brothers from let's kill him and throw him in the pit to let's sell him into slavery. Admittedly, still a terrible thing to do toward one of your family members, but not as bad as murder. Perhaps he saw in it an opportunity to allow Simeon time to reflect on his own sin that was committed back in Genesis 34, in which one of the men of the land uh, took advantage of Simeon and Levi's sister, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah's sister, Dinah. And then Simeon, in a complete, um, humanly speaking, explainable, but from God's perspective, completely unjustified murder because of this particular sin. They betray the people. They murder all the men of a particular city, and nothing apparently happens to them about it. Except now the one who probably instigated it, Simeon being slightly older than Levi, is going to sit in prison for six months or more and think about what it is that he has done. I think that that is perhaps the most likely explanation. However, the text does not say. It just says, Joseph says, all right, Simeon. He doesn't say Simeon. He says this one. He puts him in jail. He sends the rest of them on. But he is not done complicating their lives. Verse 25 he gives orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done for them. Uh, two explanations are given for this. One is that he wanted to, again, stir their consciences for a seemingly impossible thing to have taken place, to see the hand of God in it. The other is that he saw in it an opportunity to uh, help out his family by returning and essentially giving them the grain for free. Verse 26. They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack, 
to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place. He saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he returned, said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So it's escalated from we are guilty to God is the one that is doing something that we don't understand, that is pointing out the ways in which we have sinned, and has put us in great danger. Because what did Joseph accuse them of? Being dishonest, being spies. If he has now grounds on which to also accuse them of being thieves, even if they bring their youngest brother back, there's a decent chance things are not going to go well for them. And so they see in this a calamity from the hand of God coming in judgment upon them for the way that they have sinned against their brother Joseph. Notice that Joseph does not actually harm any of them, which we might well have had a desire to do if we had been Joseph. If somebody had, you know, bullied us as a child, and then we're an adult now, and we are in a position of authority over that person, you might want to do something back to that person. And they did far worse than that to Joseph, and yet he does not physically harm them. But he does, I believe, in, cons in a consistent way with what would be pleasing to God, provide for them opportunities to reflect on their sin, for God to stir their consciences and to test whether or not they truly have changed, whether they love God, whether they love their brothers, whether they love their father, all of those sorts of things. And then the verses that we read toward the end of the chapter, they recount all of these events to Jacob, discover that all of their money has been returned, and Jacob's response echoes again the fear with which he began the chapter. I'm not going to send Benjamin because something's going to happen to him. And now at the end of the chapter, you've taken away my family. Joseph's gone. Simeon's gone. Benjamin's probably going to be gone. Reuben's response is surprising in light of the way he acted toward his father in chapter 35, but not surprising in light of his actions toward Joseph in chapter 37. He is willing to suffer great personal loss for the sake of upholding his father and not having his father die of heartbreak. Uh, there's some dispute about whether he means that, he, they would, that they would actually kill his sons if Benjamin doesn't come back. Uh, a number of people have taken this as kind of an exaggeration. Do whatever you want to me and my family, but I'm going to make sure that your son comes back safely. Along the same lines as the questions that we have about Jephthah and his rash oath and what does he actually do with his daughter in the book of Judges. Uh, the bottom line is, Reuben is expressing a willingness to sacrifice what he holds dear for the sake of what his father holds dear, despite the fact that Jacob's loyalty, after all these years, still seems to communicate to the sons of Leah, who are the main characters in this chapter, that after all has gone on, the sons that really count to me are the sons of Rachel, not you guys. And so for Reuben to make this expression of willing sacrifice, I think, would have been all the, all the harder because of his father's attitude toward him. Jacob, at this point, refuses to let him go down and basically says, if something happens to him, then I'm going to die. 
And so that's where the story closes in this chapter. We'll see next week what takes place from there. But as we survey this chapter and we ask ourselves what's going on, what's, what's the point of this little section here? What, what is being highlighted for us? We see the contrast between the threat of death from famine and the life that God provides through Joseph, through the grain to be bread that is found in Egypt. We see the contrast between the fear of Jacob and the question of whether there is love in the sons of Leah, Joseph's half-brothers, by the means in which he tests them throughout this chapter. And as I looked at this passage, it reminded me of a passage in the New Testament. So turn over to John 6, if you would. We spoke in previous weeks about the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ, between the way that God used Joseph to deliver people physically and the way that God used Christ to deliver people spiritually and eternally. And I think in this imagery of bread and deliverance and fear and love and all of these sorts of things, I think those ideas also come together in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we have at the beginning of the chapter the feeding of the large crowd, the 5,000. And then we come to the interpretation of it around verse 26. The crowd keeps following Jesus after he feeds them, right? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Like Joseph's brothers, like Jacob's family, the Israelites in Jesus' day saw in God's provision for their physical needs merely a provision for their physical needs, and they wanted more of it merely to keep having their physical needs provided for. But God wanted to do something more profound in and among them. And I think the tests that Joseph institutes in chapter 42 were under, in, the, in accordance with God's will, designed to see whether God was doing something in them spiritually, not just could he provide for their physical needs. He says in verse 28, Jesus in John 6, They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Very similar to what the woman at the well said, uh, the passage we glanced at briefly on Wednesday night. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone, who has, seen the, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am, the diffi- I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples stumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why did I read you that long passage from John 6, and what in the world does it have to do with Genesis 42? Here's the connection point. The important thing in what Joseph says and does in this chapter is in his statement where he says, I fear God. God could have just said, I don't want him to starve, so I'm going to give him food, and that's good enough. But through what God does in the words and actions of Joseph, God is working in the sons of Jacob something more than just meeting their physical needs. He is confronting them with their sin 
and confessing that sin and dealing with that sin, and as we'll see in coming chapters, finding forgiveness of that sin, in the same way that Jesus feeds the crowds and they think, great, we've been fed, that's all we need, do it again. And Jesus says, the thing that you really need is not bread, because you're going to eat bread and you're going to eat bread and you're going to eat bread and then you will die. You need eternal life found in the eternal bread. I have come down from heaven, Jesus says. I am the bread of life. I am the way to God the Father. And what you really need, just like he said to the woman at the well about water and living water, and pure bread and living bread, what you really need is to know me and follow me and trust in me because... What happens to Joseph's brothers back in Genesis 42? They eat up all the bread. And they need more of it. And God uses that as the chapters unfold to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. But what they really and truly needed was not only physical deliverance, which is the primary thing that God did for them through Joseph, but also spiritual confrontation about their sin and about had they repented of it, and about were they fearing God as Joseph feared God. And so when we look at the story of Joseph, don't look at the story of Joseph and say, they went down to Egypt, God gave them food, they didn't die, the end. Look at the story of Joseph and see that God is both foreshadowing what He's going to do for the people of Israel with the man in the wilderness, and anticipating the words of Christ that are going to come more than a thousand years later, where Jesus says, I am the true bread of life, I am eternal life. God is preparing the way for that statement and those words then because of what he's doing in Joseph and his brothers and Jacob's family there and continually unpacking this theme that, yes, we have physical needs, but the ultimate and primary need that we have is a relationship with God. And in the context of meeting the needs physically of Jacob's family for bread, God through Joseph is also confronting their spiritual needs, which are ultimately and only met in Christ. Joseph tests his brothers. Jesus tests his disciples. Why in the world Jesus has this huge crowd following him? If you had 5,000 people following you, and more, because it was only 5,000 men. There were probably women and children there as well. Why in the world would you say something to drive some of them away? Why would you say something like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is exactly what we're going to be remembering here in a few moments? Why would he say something like that? Because Jesus wasn't just concerned about having a big crowd follow him because they liked his miracles and benefited from them in a physical sense. Jesus wanted people to genuinely follow him and believe in him and trust in him. And the participation in his death is the only way in which they would be genuinely believing and following and trusting in him. And so if they wanted no participation and union with him in his death and in his resurrection, which was to follow, they had no part with him and he didn't want them as disciples which is a profound thing for us to consider because 
Sometimes we have the idea that the goal should be to get as many people following Jesus as possible, but if they're following Jesus for the wrong reasons, if they're not truly following him, God doesn't want them. And we know all the stuff behind the scenes, that God has to work in them. Jesus mentions that even in John 6. But are you following God because you think that he's going to meet your physical needs and make your life better than if you don't follow him? Or are you following God because you really and truly believe in him? Do you, like Joseph, have the testimony, I fear God? And do you have the testimony, I fear God, with all that stood behind in Joseph's experience, which was betrayal, imprisonment, false accusations, imprisonment, uh, slavery, false accusations, imprisonment, being given an opportunity for power, but being completely isolated from your family. All of those things stand behind Joseph's statement, but I fear God. You could say, but I fear God despite all of these things. When we look at a passage like Genesis 42, and we set it alongside the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness, and we set it alongside the words of Christ, we ought to recognize that God has never been about just taking care of our physical bodies. Should we starve ourselves? No. Should we be gluttons? No. Are our bodies evil? No. But what is God trying to do? God is trying to transform the entirety of our being to be used for Him, driven by a heart and a soul that longs after and trusts in Him, that possesses eternal life through Christ, the only means of having that eternal life. In Genesis 42, the question I think is, do you fear God? And Joseph is testing that even as God meets their other needs. The question for us in light of Genesis 42 and the Israelites and John 6 is, when Jesus makes hard statements, when Jesus brings difficulties into your life, when Jesus says, do you fear God, do you believe in me? Is your answer yes, but only if you do all the things that I want you to do for me? Or is your answer just yes without any qualifications? What's Peter's answer at the end of John 6? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter sometimes spoke better than he knew by the way that he lived. But what he says here is true. Can we echo that sort of faith in our following after Jesus? Or do we hold out hope that maybe there's another place we could go to besides Jesus and God's Word and all of those sorts of things? Jesus is the only way. Joseph is a picture in some ways of what Jesus would be here in this passage. God gives both physical and eternal life, but between the two, which one's more important? And so as we look at these passages, as we consider what it is we're about to remember, as we think about what we discussed in Sunday school, that we're not only looking at the past, we're not only proclaiming something in the present, 
we are also anticipating something in the future when we gather and celebrate this feast in God's presence in heaven with Christ as his people, that ought to stir our hearts, help us to look past merely seeing God as the, 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 the being that sends rain so that we can have crops, so that we can have food. That's a pagan view of a God, right? Baal, all he could do is make you have good grain crops and make you have kids, right? That was their view of Baal in the Old Testament. If that's what we settle for, for our perspective on God, it falls far short of the biblical picture because God is doing a lot more than just those things. Not that the physical is unimportant or that it's disconnected from spiritual things, but God's ultimate goal is a lot more. And I think we see glimpses of that in our story today. And so in this passage, we see they're going from fear and famine to life physically, but also the question of eternal life, the question of love for one another, for God. And we'll see that continue to unfold with Joseph's attitude toward them, with God's provision for them, with Jacob's words of blessing and not blessing in chapter 49, and with the summary of the book in Genesis 50. Once Jacob is dead and gone, what's Joseph going to do? Is he going to continue in faith? How's he going to treat his brothers? You've read the end of the book, but we'll get there here in a few weeks. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider what you're doing in the life of Joseph and the rest of Jacob's family, we see your hand of blessing upon the people that you've chosen in the book of Genesis. We see foreshadowing of how you will continue to provide for your people. We see anticipation of the greatest provision of all being in Christ. We see how all of these truths come together as we eat, as we drink, we do it for your glory, particularly as we eat, as we drink, to remember Christ and what he has done. Lord, help us to come soberly before you as we gather at this time. Help us to be amazed by how you have drawn together the threads of history, the unfolding of your truth. Help us to agree with and truly believe in our hearts those simple words of Joseph, I fear God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.